If you brought a copy of Scripture with you today, you can find Genesis chapter 12 as we resume our study of the book of Genesis with a brand new series. You're looking at the title, Faith of Our Fathers. It was half a life ago, literally half a life ago, I was between my junior and senior years in Bible college, and a little tiny church up in northern Iowa asked me to become their pastor. And I was filled with fear and trepidation because I didn't know anything about small towns. I didn't know anything about farm, farming uh, community. And it was a real small church. I didn't know anything about th that kind of an environment. And I was, I was just trying to hear from God because at the same time, I sensed from the Lord that uh, I should go there. And, uh, and yet I just felt like I needed to hear from God. So on the morning that I had to make an answer uh, to the church, I opened my Bible where I left off the day before, which was in Hebrews chapter 11. And I said, God, you've got to let me know today. I don't know much about where I'm going, but I sense you're leading me there. Let me know, what is your will for me? And I read these words, by faith, Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. And Abraham's call on that day became my call. And so let's just look at that call today as we begin this new series, Faith of Our Fathers, in Genesis chapter 12. And beginning in verse 1, we're just going to be looking at the first uh, three and a half verses. So here we go. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now, if you were with us uh, back in late spring when we suspended our series in the book of Genesis, then you know that uh, Pastor Brad preached from this passage. Indeed, he preached this entire chapter and did a tremendous job of so doing. And he pointed out when he preached this message that the, that great faith, the faith of Abraham, uh, believes the bare promises of God. He also pointed out that, that great faith responds in obedience as Abraham. Abraham went out. And finally, in, in accordance with what R. Kent Hughes says in his commentary, Brad pointed out, great faith has as its object God. And we'll come back to that. So why return to the text? I mean, if it's already been preached several months ago, and uh, I'd like to say because Brad didn't do a very good job. That's not true. He did a great job. Uh, and there is a sense in which we just move on from here. But the fact is, this is such a vitally important text that some people think that the division between chapter 11 and 12 is more important than the, the division between Malachi and Matthew. So that's why we're coming back for a refresher, if you please. Although it'll be a different uh, spin on the, um, on, the, on the text, not a different interpretation. Same interpretation, different approach. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis is, is, the focus is the earth, the world, 
and uh, creation to the pre-flood, to the flood, to the post-flood era. And then in chapter 12, like a laser beam, the focus is in on one man as he sets out on his faith journey. And we're talking, of course, about Abraham. And this one man would become the very epitome and definition of faith, what faith is. If you want to know what faith is, you look to the life of Abraham called the father of our faith. In fact, 2,000 years later, the Apostle Paul, in writing his magnum opus on faith and salvation in the book of Romans, described the faith of Abraham when he believed God later on in chapter 15. We'll get to that, Lord willing, in the days to come. By saying that Abraham believed God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now just stare at that for a moment. Because you're looking at a virtual biblical definition of what faith is. That this is faith. You want to say, what is faith? This is faith. It's being convinced that what God was was able to do exactly what he promised. So Abraham's son and his grandson would later become known as this familiar family triad. Uh, The triad is Abraham... Isaac, and Jacob. You read that repeatedly throughout the Bible, beginning in Genesis and ending with Jesus, beginning with Joseph, and then Jesus says, we're all who know God will sit down, will come from the east and the west, and will sit down at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why why Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Uh, Why not Adam, Abel, and Seth? Or Noah, Shem, and Japheth? For that matter, why not just Abraham? Why does he have to throw in Isaac and Jacob? I mean, it's not like Isaac and Jacob were spiritual rock stars. The answer is that the promises of God to Abram were repeated to his son Isaac and to Jacob. And the implication is that the faith of our fathers is a a kind of faith that's intended to be handed down passed on, transmitted, dispensed to our children and our children's children and beyond. In fact, this is how the writer of the psalmist, this is how the psalmist put it in Psalm 78. Listen, and just count the generations, if you please. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So you see there, this has always been the desire of God to transmit truth to the generations to come, hence the title of the series, Faith of Our Fathers. Several years ago, I sat down with a godly man who was dying of cancer. He was just a click away from eternity at the time. And, he had, and two of his sons were sitting in the room, and I was visiting with them, and he would be with the Lord in just a matter of days. And so I was kind of getting ready to do the funeral, and I said to his sons, I said, do you, do you know the faith story of your dad? Do you, can you tell me his testimony of faith in Christ? And they both looked at each other. They could not tell it. So I looked at the old man, and I said, would you tell us your story? 
And with every fiber of what being he had left in him, which wasn't much, he eked out a beautiful, precious, and powerful testimony of faith in Christ. I literally was grabbing scratch paper and scribbling it down. It would become the thing that would grab the audience at the funeral a few uh, weeks later. I share that with you because passing down our God stories is vital to the future generations. It's, it's replete in scripture, the stories getting handed down. And that's why we have Abraham, that triad, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promises came, came to each one, by, but by implication to the generations that would follow. Now back to Abraham. Just as a refresher, he's a middle-aged guy. He's 75, which was what middle-aged uh, was back then, and looking more middle-aged all the time. His wife was 65. They were childless. They were also idol worshipers, according to Joshua 24, verse 2. And so they were from the very cradle of civilization and creation, the city of Ur. And Brad pointed out, actually, here you are looking, you're looking at a map. This is the area where we think probably Eden was, although it's been far removed and even taken away since then. But this is, this is and Ur wasn't just a, again, as was pointed out, wasn't just some podunk center where there's a Casey's and a stoplight. It was a, metro, it was a metropolis over a hundred, just over, in fact, right around a hundred years ago, archaeology recovered all kinds of tremendous artifacts from this area. This was a very wealthy society. Hence, this is what Abraham came from. He was a wealthy man. He probably didn't have any physical needs, though he wanted children for sure. But he was without God. And that's enough, isn't it? That's enough to create a need to be without God. Because everything you have, by the way, God could care less about your status in society. He could care less about your accomplishments, your wealth in this world. It's all meaningless without Jesus Christ. And it really does seem that only those who get money and or fame are the ones who really get that. I remember that was true of Tom Brady after he won three Super Bowls. He unfulfilled. Just a couple of weeks ago, ESPN did an interview of Aaron Rodgers, the Super, Bowl, uh, the Super Bowl champion Green Bay Packers, several years ago. He told the story that after the Packers won the Super Bowl, they passed that Super Bowl trophy all around the bus with Aaron Rodgers going, is this it? It seems like everybody who gets to the pinnacle, whatever the pinnacle is, those are the ones who realize this is so meaningless, as Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes without a relationship with God. Unfortunately, Aaron Rodgers ran into Rob Bell and just went from bad to worse with all kinds of heresy. But here Abraham is told by God to leave. Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house. Leave with a mixture. He's given a mixture of thrilling promises and an unknown destination. He's given three promises in that text we just read. He's given a promise of land, of seed, and of blessing. It's as if God was saying to Abraham, I'm going to give you land, though you don't know where it will be. I'm going to give you children, though you don't know how it will be. I'm going to give you blessing, though you don't know what it will be. Now, the land was Israel. We know that. 
Canaan, which became Israel and the surrounding area, the children would become the Jews. And the blessing was multifaceted. It would include wealth and status, a nation of people who, are, who have, to this present hour, are arguably the smartest people the world has ever been blessed with, the Jew. And any blessings, he said in this, any blessings that they receive were to be dispensed because he says to Abraham, the, the, the world is going to be blessed through you. And by the way, it, it, to the degree in this text, he says, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And you can follow that track backwards in history. It's unbelievable. To whatever degree nations have blessed the Jew, they have been blessed. And to whatever degree nations have cursed the Jew, they have been cursed. Have you ever heard, do you know where any Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites are? They're gone. They don't exist anymore. The, the great mighty power of Egypt is a third-rate country today. Rome, no more. Not the one that we know of. Germany, just this last century. Those who curse you, I will curse. And our country has been blessed because we have blessed Israel and to the degree that we continue to do so, to that degree we will be blessed. I am absolutely convinced of that. History verifies. Of course, the greatest blessing, and we'll get to that again, is the blessing that, of the lineage that gave birth to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Abraham's call and, the, his, and his response in faith has several encouraging parallels, truths, applications that you, can, you and I can receive this morning. And I want to give them to you today. And here's the first one I see here. Not everyone God calls comes with a ton of baggage. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean not everyone is, is unsinful. Everyone is sinful. Everyone is wrecked on the inside. But it doesn't always show on the outside, does it? Abraham was well off. In good health, apparently without a lot of worries, he did want children, had no, but, but he had otherwise a worryless life. But beyond life, it was meaningless. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, not many of you were, are of noble means. He, remember, he says not many, he uses the word many several times. In fact, the godly Queen Victoria said she was saved by an M. She was glad Paul didn't say not any of you were noble, <laughs> but not many. Last week, we heard testimonies in the baptismal of both those with and without baggage. The similarities are that they were all lost, just like some of you. It doesn't matter how comfortable you are in life, how wealthy you are, whether you got your savings and your health intact, and you got that whole future thing how smug can we get? God can take us from this world right now. It doesn't matter your position in life. Not everyone that God calls comes with a ton of baggage. You're still a sinner in need of grace and salvation. Secondly, everyone who gets God's call gets God's promises. Everyone who gets God's call, gets God's promise. The, and the I will here is used six times in these four verses. I will, I will, I will make your name great. 
God says to Abraham. The great I am can say, I will, and make it happen. Do you remember the story of the leper that comes to Jesus in Mark chapter 1? He comes to Jesus, he comes running, he comes kneeling, and he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And he got it right. And that's what impressed Jesus. The leper didn't come to Jesus and said, if you're able. He knew Jesus was able. He said, if you're willing. And if you follow the text, Jesus says, I am willing, and he heals him. It's never a matter of God's ability, but his will. And God, when God implements his will in your life, it's an unconditional thing. When God's call comes, it comes with the unconditional I will. And when he told Abraham, I will make your name great, that's exactly what he did. And what a contrast to Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel and all those people congregating together. And they said, you know, remember what they said? Let's make a name what? Let's make a name for ourselves. And that's never changed. Um, probably most of us have experienced visions of grandeur at least once or twice in our lives, right? Personal greatness. I have a better idea. Rather than making a name in a book of records, you ought to be making sure your name is in heaven's book of life. And one of the most dreadful scenes you will ever read in the scripture is toward the very end of your Bible, we're in Revelation 20, John writes, and I I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, because God's not a respecter of persons, and the books were opened, and another book, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged in accordance with what was written in those books. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Those are serious words, aren't they? Every time I read that, I think of my friend Glenn, the lead guitarist for Alice Cooper that we led to Christ many years ago. Wandered into the, it's a, it's a long story I won't get into, but Glenn came to Christ and he was just, he was, I mean, he just, he was 49 years old. He looked like he was 69. He comes to Christ, he comes into my office one day with his Bible, and he says, I need you to, man, dude, man, like, I need you to read my, or sign my Bible. So I said, okay. So I, I opened it up, and I wrote, Dear Glenn, I'm just staring at it for a while, and he's just looking at me like this. I said, hey, Glenn, would you just leave this with me? I'll, I'll write in it, and I'll give it back to you this Sunday. No, man, I got to have my Bible. He just walked out of my office, just like that. Sometime later, he caught a cold one day, got pneumonia the second day, died on the third. 49 years old. His girlfriend gave me his Bible. I preached from his Bible. The all Alice Cooper band, except for Alice, were right there. I said, as, as, as Glenn was rising in the rock world, he discovered he needed a rock that was higher than that. And I, and I pointed out, that I, I've, I'm, I've got his Bible, and I opened it up and just said, Dear Glenn, that's all it said in there. I said, I never got a chance to sign Glenn's Bible. I said, but more important than my signature in Glenn's Bible was his name in the book of life. And that's what you have to be thinking about. Listen, if you take care of God's fame, he'll take care of your name. 
The great I am says to you who come to him, I will, I will give you eternal life and you will never perish. He who comes to me, I will, I will in no way, what? I won't cast out. You respond to God's call and you'll get God's promise. Thirdly, God's promise perfects imperfect faith. Anybody here have imperfect faith? Listen carefully to this. Your faith does not save you. Did you catch that? Your faith does not save you. God saves you. If you're relying on your faith, you're relying on yourself. Now, it is the vehicle by which we trust in God, by which we trust in Jesus Christ, but your faith doesn't save you. God saves you. And once God saves you, he who began a good work in you will bring it to perfection. He'll bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God ruthlessly perfects those he royally elects. I love that line. I didn't make it up. I mean, Abraham's faith is unbelievably imperfect. So much so, we sort of get discouraged reading about him sometimes, don't we? I mean, the very next scene, the very next scene from here in chapter 12, he's lying. He lies about his wife. In fact, if you, if you go later in the narrative in chapter 20 and verse 13, you don't need to go there now, but mark it down. You get the impression that while they were in Ur, when God called them, they were scheming then. Hey, you know, we're going to run into a lot of people. You're a, you're a good-looking girl, and they're going to want to do this. Every time you die, all that was going on long before they ever got where they were going. Look again at verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. Did he do that? No. He brought his dad, Terah, and his nephew, Lot, and his family, and according to verse 5, the people he gathered. So there's a bunch of people in this, this entourage. Terah slows down the train. They end up in Haran for a while until he dies off. Lot really messes things up, but I'm getting ahead of myself. That's chapter 13. Why would he bring all of these individuals with him when he's told to leave them all? I, I guess they were his security blankets, and it's never been any different to the present hour. In fact, it's true in some of your lives right now. You love your family, and of course you do, but your family has become your security, and your security has become your noose. It's keeping you from obeying God because of your fear, because of your love, because of your wonder. This is one of the saddest scenes I have observed repeatedly has been those who have allowed family to keep them from obeying God. Is it any wonder that Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, he who would come after me must hate his father and mother, his wife, his children, his own life also, or he cannot be my disciple. Abraham will later give in to his wife's insistence to circumvent 
the word of God, which was to wait. God was going to do a miracle. They were going to have children from Abraham's, you know, from Abraham. Sarah was going to have a, a baby and, and said she jumped in there and let's do it our way. Let's have a kid our way. And it worked. They got their kid and a whole lot of problems along with it. In fact, most who read Abraham's story in a cursory way, you, you sort of walk away with a sour taste in your mouth, don't you? I mean, how is it that this guy gets propped up as a faith that I'm supposed to follow? And then I look at my own life. It's inconsistencies, my own sins, my own lapses in faith. Can I get a witness to that? And I conclude, geez, Abraham's not so bad to follow after all. He does leave, doesn't he? Verse 4, so Abraham went. He leaves, brings some baggage with him, but he, he leaves. He's got extra luggage. He does believe, and he will believe again. And in fact, we know that he acts out his faith in the most staggering of ways when he's wielding a knife over his own son he's waited so long for, ready to plunge it into him. When God stops him, this is amazing faith. And the whole time, God's promise was perfecting his imperfect faith. And aren't you glad? Isn't that what he's doing in your life? Isn't he constantly perfecting our faith? Isn't that what he does? George Morrison was right when he said this, the victorious life is a series of new beginnings. And probably some of you just need to see that today. You're in the middle of a failure of faith. You're down. You're guilty. You're sort of in the weeds, spiritually speaking, right now. Some of you are. Why not return to the Lord for a new beginning today? God never stopped loving you if you placed your faith in his son, Jesus. He doesn't let you go. We just sang about that, right? He will never let us go. But he will continue to perfect in us. Wearsby's, Warren Wearsby's wisdom is great. He says, as you study the life of Abraham, you discover that when you trust in the Lord, no test is impossible and no failure is permanent. Some of you just need to hear that. No test is impossible and no failure is permanent. This doesn't give us, you know, some license to sin, not at all, because there's always something to pay when we do, right? But God blesses us and his promise perfects imperfect faith. Fourthly, God blesses us so that we might bless others. That seems clear enough, doesn't it, in here? I will make you a great nation, verse 2. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a what? A blessing. You some say, well, that's a promise only to Abraham. Really? I mean, I get what you're saying, but isn't this principle replete in Scripture? You bless, you will be blessed. 
The writer of Proverbs says, whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. This principle is everywhere in scripture. Listen, God blessed Abram to make him, watch this, not just a receptacle, but a dispenser of blessings. And when he blesses you and he blesses me, he does so not just to make us receptacles, not just those who receive, get, 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 but give, spill out. That's the whole intention, that we not just be receptacles, but dispensers of the grace and blessings of God. Some of us are guilty of spiritual myopia. You know, that's just this, so, this nearsightedness. It's all about me, my loves, my passions, my, my, my hobbies, my wife, my kids, my, my, my. And it's all, you're just, everything's about me. You just become a receptacle. You actually, you know, you're just a cistern is what you are. Rather than taking the blessings of God as intended by God and spilling them out to others. That's where great power and riches come. God blesses us that we might bless others. And so the question here this morning is, are you a receptacle or a dispenser? You should be both. And finally, God chose Abram with you in mind. That's what the last part of verse three says. He says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be what? Shall be blessed. God's plans for Abram had both national and international implications. The greatest would be the offspring, Jesus. And God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We're told to bless the Lord repeatedly in Scripture, but here, God is the one doing the blessing, promising to make Abraham a blessing to others. And by the way, the, the old English word to bless literally means to mark with blood. So when you say, God bless you, you're, you're actually wishing God's blood upon someone else. That's a pretty good thing to wish. Because the blood of Jesus, God's son, is what cleanses us from all sin. And, and by the way, if you're wondering if this has any gospel implications, listen to what Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3. I'll just read it to you. And the scripture... For seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, quote, In you shall all the nations be blessed. We know from the New Testament that when God said to Abraham, through you all the nations will be blessed, he was thinking about the gospel. He was thinking about the good news. He was thinking about his son who would die and rise again for us. We are talking about the faith of our fathers, beginning with Abraham. If your kids wrote your life story, what would it be titled? Frankly, when I hear some of the stories that my kids share, I think, oh, goodness, oh, God, forgive me. Rewind the tape. 
Their memories will be the books we leave behind. The faith of our fathers was intended to become our faith and then that of our children. So as they unpack our luggage in the future, will they find faith, albeit imperfect? Will they find the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, as Jude put it? And will it be real? Will it have been real and spilled out? Will you be known to your kids as not just a receiver, but a dispenser of the blessings of God? Father in heaven, we thank you for the faith of our fathers, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and for their albeit imperfect faith because it wasn't faith that saved them. It was you that saved them. It's not our faith that saves us. It is you who save us as we anchor our souls to you. We thank you, Lord, that for the vehicle of faith. And we pray that you would make us a people of faith. As we look back on the past, may they be inspirations to our future and our children and our children's children and beyond. I pray today for those who know you, Lord, but have their faith is wonky, they're in the weeds, they're struggling, but they've heard a word of encouragement today, Lord, that, that the victorious life can be a series of new beginnings, and I pray that they would find this today would be a new beginning for them. I pray for those who have never experienced a new beginning in Christ if that would be you, my friend, that you would surrender your heart to Jesus. You've sensed it in your soul right now. You're lost. Christ died and rose again for you. You want him. Repent of your sin and believe in him today. You'll be saved. And he will never let you go. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.